Welcome to The Wild Photographer with Court Whalen. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Wild Photographer. We're talking about night photography today in a very introductory episode that is uh, not coincidentally termed Night Photography 101. Everything you need to know to get you out to photograph stars, northern lights, etc., etc. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff, the gear, the technique. But let me start off by saying that night photography, frankly, is one of the more challenging types of photography out there. It is not easy. That's why I'm dedicating a whole episode to this and probably future episodes as we get to more specifics. However, with that, although it's the most challenging or one of the most challenging, it's also one of the most rewarding. You are capturing things that are just absolutely spectacular and frankly, kind of seldom seen. It's not very common to see the Milky Way. Your camera as a digital instrument can actually capture it and display it better than your eyes can see it. We'll get to why that is in a second. But ultimately, I want you to understand that while it's challenging, it's also some of the most rewarding photography out there. Another reason it's challenging is it does require a lot more preparation and it requires more gear than normal. But once again, the goal of this podcast is to prep you, get you ready for it, give you a list of the gear, give you all the different techniques that I personally use and others in the field use for photographing things at night. And I think you're going to be some of the best prepared people to hit the road this summer, photograph that Milky Way in its brightest, and we're going to get some great results together. So first things first, I want to address something that people often ask or people often critique on, which is why in the world are the colors so brilliant in your camera when you're photographing the Milky Way or the Aurora Borealis? They're great in the camera, but my eyes don't quite see what you're capturing. And that usually leads to a little bit of doubt. It usually leads to the question, well, are you faking it? Are you fudging it? Are you Photoshopping the heck out of these photos to create artificial representations of what's actually happening? The great news is no, we are not doing that. Actually, what we're doing is we're capturing the phenomenon more accurately than our eyes are able to perceive themselves. So why is that? Well, so the camera, like I mentioned just a second ago, is a digital instrument. Our eyes are not. Now, our eyes are absolutely miraculous. We can see so much more dynamic range than cameras. We are able to see peripheral vision in an extraordinary field of view. We can perceive a lot of lights in darks and darks in lights, again, that dynamic range. However, what we don't really do well at seeing is color at night. And what it boils down to is that our eyes are comprised of two different things. Well, a lot of different things, but two main things as it pertains to this topic, rods and cones. Rods are really, really good at seeing light in darkness, but they're not really good at seeing color. In fact, they have very, very little color receptors, if any at all. Essentially, your cones are really, really good at seeing color, but they only see in daylight conditions or they only see in light conditions. So what you have is two parts of your eyes that are going against each other. Your rods that are able to see stuff in darkness, i.e. stars in the middle of the night, but you're not seeing any color. Your cones are able to see the light, but there's just not that much of it, right? Even something bright like the Aurora Borealis is not really all that bright compared to the very, very dark sky. If you've ever tried to take a photo, whether it's with a big fancy camera or your iPhone, you realize that you are under very, very dark conditions. So what this all boils down to is that our eyes are not very good at seeing color in really dark conditions. Juxtapose that with a camera, and a camera as a digital instrument is actually really good at seeing this because it's just a tool, it's, it's a computer, it's an instrument. So as a result, when we see these dramatic colors of the Aurora Borealis or of the Milky Way at night, we're actually seeing the true colors that are there. We're not amplifying it. We're just matching and we're perceiving and we're essentially displaying in the back of your camera or on your computer the actual colors that are there in the atmosphere. 
Phew, rest assured, we're not faking it. So for the rest of this presentation, I'm gonna be giving you the tips and tricks and gear needed to photograph two main things at night. Uh, we're talking about stars or astrophotography, and we're talking about northern lights. If you are interested in photographing other things at night, the tools that I'm gonna be giving you here via the information will pretty much suffice for any sort of nighttime photography you want, you want to do. These are just two of the more extreme examples because they have the least light, the most finicky conditions. So really anything else you want to photograph, maybe your house at night, maybe a university campus or camps in the middle of the mountains, they're really going to be somewhat easy by comparison. So by starting off with the hardest stuff, you have the tools needed for anything else out there. So let's begin with the gear you need for astrophotography. First off, because we're going to be shooting at very slow shutter speeds, I'm talking about like 20 full seconds, you've got to have a tripod. There is zero way you can take good star photos without a tripod. When it comes to tripods out there, I could probably have a whole other podcast on my preferences, the types of tripods. The main thing is, is that if you have a tripod and it's anything more than $15, it's going to be good to start off with. You don't have to go out and spend the $400 for a carbon fiber, quick release, blah, blah, blah. Just get a tripod. If you fall in love with this type of photography, then yeah, you might want a more stable one, but any tripod will do for starters. If you do not have a tripod and you're thinking, well, I'd rather make a decent investment right off the bat than buy some piece of junk and then have to upgrade right away. The main thing I recommend is use a tripod before you buy it. We are in an age where everything is able to be purchased online. Uh, camera gear is certainly no exception. However, the issue is that tripods work different ways. They're, some are easier, some are more difficult. And I'll tell you what I mentioned in the beginning of this presentation about one of the complications or challenges of this type of photography is that, you know, it's dark outside. For northern lights, it's often cold. You don't want how your tripod works to be a barrier to entry. You don't want to have some sort of weird screws and weird swivels and weird dials that you can never figure out or are counterintuitive. You want to get a tripod that works for you and it's super easy to use. Beyond that, of course, you want something that's pretty darn stable. That's the whole point of a tripod. But again, like I mentioned, if you get anything that's over $15 or $20, it's going to do the trick for starters. I would say, to be perfectly honest, getting into the, the quote-unquote good tripod realm starts at about $100. When you start spending $100 on a tripod, you're getting pretty premium quality stuff. And beyond that, as far as the shopping you do, you get into different genres like lightweight travel tripods versus more stable ones that are bulkier and harder to pack in a suitcase. Um, I'm not going to go into the details here. The main thing in this gear list is you need a tripod. The next thing you need is a camera and a lens, obviously. Now here's where things get kind of interesting. Um, I unfortunately have to say that unless you have a camera that's capable of interchangeable lenses, you're gonna have a really hard time photographing northern lights or stars or anything where you have those really long exposure times. And the reason is that you have three main settings you're gonna have to dial in. Now I'll go over these in great detail just here in a bit, but you're gonna have to have a low F number, a shutter speed of 20 to 30 seconds, and an ISO of at least 800, preferably even higher. The problem is, is that with most point-and-shoot cameras, you do not have the ability to get all three things at once. It's just a plain limitation of those cameras. There is one genre of camera that's starting to be able to handle this, and this is what's known as a bridge camera. As of the date of this podcast, there are three camera manufacturers, uh, Sony, Panasonic, and Nikon, that are kind of dipping their toes in this water. Sony tends to be leading the way on this right now, but these bridge cameras, which are basically gonna be like DSLRs or like mirrorless cameras without interchangeable lenses, they'll do okay, but if you wanna quickly test your own camera to see if you can take 
proper night photos, see if you can set those settings. You know, F4, 20 second exposure, and ISO 1000. Chances are, on most point and shoots, even really, really great point and shoots in the five, six, $700 range, you are not going to be able to get that ISO high enough while also getting that long shutter speed. Sorry, just plain limitation. But for those of you with a DSLR or a mirrorless with those interchangeable lenses, here's the deal, is you want to get a camera that handles high ISOs as best as possible. Now, that is going to cost some money. Um, that's kind of the latest camera technology is getting those high ISOs. So the newer the camera, the better they're going to be able to handle it. But again, I don't want this to be a barrier to entry for you because a lot of people just want to go out, photograph the stars, see how they like it. Maybe they fall in love with it and then upgrade. That's totally fine. But ultimately, the more expensive camera, the better it can handle these low light scenarios. There's another really big line in the sand when you go from what's known as a crop frame sensor to a full frame sensor. Uh, if you don't know what that means, your camera is probably a crop frame. It's usually more of the intro level cameras, bodies that are in around the $1,000 range, more or less. Your full frame cameras get into the pro level. This is when you get into two, three, four, or $5,000 bodies. Uh, it seems like a heck of an investment. It certainly is. But I can tell you, if you want the cream of the crop, the Cadillac here, uh, a full frame camera is going to be your best bet for shooting in low light conditions. Best bet for star photography. Next, what kind of lens to use? Here's where it's up to a little bit of interpretation. I'll give you what I think is best, but there are two main considerations. One, you need a very fast lens. And two, you need a really wide lens, something capable of really wide angle shots. Fast lenses are those that can go to really, really low F numbers, like F2.8 and even lower, maybe F1.4. Uh, you can get away with F3.5 and F4, but the problem is, Every time you go from one stop to the next, so from 2.8 to 4, 4 to 5.6, 5.6 to 8, you are cutting the amount of light your camera's perceiving by half. Uh, that quickly gets to very low light. You're already shooting in a ridiculously low light scenario, and to be limiting yourself of any more light by shooting at those bigger F numbers, you're just not going to be able to get the shot you're wanting and envisioning. Next, the reason you want a really wide-angle lens is that you, of course, want to get as much of the sky in your shot but here's a little known reason, and I think might be equally, if not more important. When you're photographing in the dark, it's going to be kind of hard to set your camera up perfectly. It's going to be hard to have it completely level. It's going to be hard to get all the foreground elements that you want in to make a compelling shot. So I always shoot as wide as possible. So that way, after the fact, if I need to straighten my shot, if I need to crop it and recompose to get something to align to the rule of thirds or the golden ratio or other compositional elements, I'm shooting ridiculously wide, so I had that room to crop in and still look like a big, wide landscape shot with a lot of the sky. So essentially, it's buying you a little bit of space with this ultra-wide angle stuff. So what is an ultra-wide angle lens? What are the numbers behind it? Well, for crop frame sensors, I'm usually looking at something in and around 10 millimeters at its widest, and that's what I'm usually shooting at. For full-frame sensors, I'm usually looking at something between 14, 16, 17, and not too much bigger than that. Uh, a lot of these lenses you'll find are zoom lenses, so it might be a 14 to 24, it might be a 16 to 35, but I'm almost always shooting on the widest end of that spectrum, the lowest focal range number. I often get the question about fish eyes and whether they're useful for this type of photography. You know, they really are. They're quite fun. Um, they're very specialty lenses. So if you do want to get into astrophotography, they might be useful if you already have one, but I don't recommend necessarily going out and buying one 
as your primary night photo lens or your astrophotography lens, there are better options out there. That all being said, if you have one, bring it along with you on your photo shoots. It's gonna get some really, really cool results because it is so extremely wide. But you will notice a good bit of distortion at the corners of a fisheye lens, whereas these other ones I'm talking about are known as rectilinear. They might have a little bit of distortion, but not anywhere near as much as a classic fisheye lens. The final reason I like shooting on ultra-wides, again, in that 10 millimeter, 14 millimeter range, is actually, it's weird to say, but it has to do with the rotation of the Earth. Uh, this is specific to astrophotography. So here, here's the weird thing, the interesting thing, is that when we shoot on long exposures with stars, we actually are limited by how long an exposure we can have. We can't go for minutes and minutes and minutes, or else what you're going to notice is the rotation of the Earth, believe it or not, is quote-unquote so fast that those stars will actually start to blur. They'll start to look like little worms because they elongate as your shutter is open and the Earth rotates they get to be this distorted, sort of elongated look, not pinpoint dots like a star should be, but a little bit of movement injected, frankly, because of the movement of the Earth. It's cool stuff, but it's not something we really want. So how you can avoid that, there is a rule, and I'll talk about this again here in a second, a rule of the longest maximum shutter speed you can have when photographing stars. And it's an equation of 500 divided by the focal length of your lens. Okay, so you can imagine if you have 500 divided by a 100 millimeter lens, you can't shoot longer than five seconds, 500 divided by 100. However, as that focal length lessens, you can have a longer shutter speed. So divide that by half and a 50 millimeter, you can shoot for 10 seconds. So again, if you continue going down and down and down at 24 millimeter, you can shoot a little bit longer. And then when you start getting into like the 14 millimeter, 10 millimeter range, you can actually start to shoot upwards of 25 to 30 seconds. That buys you more time. The reason behind it is that it's so wide and those stars appear smaller in your frame, you notice that rotation, you notice the movement a little bit less and it becomes basically tolerable. It doesn't slow the earth down at all, but it does make the photo more tolerable. You have more of an acceptance of how much blur there is and just looks like less in your frame. So what we have here is the need for two different things that are kind of mutually exclusive. Uh, you want a really fast lens and you want a really wide lens. There aren't a lot of choices out there. The ideal thing, of course, if you could just wish to the magic unicorn and get a really, really wide angle like a 12 millimeter or 14 millimeter and have it capable of getting down to f1.4, that would just be sublime. It'd be fantastic. Well, the truth is, is that those don't really exist too often. We're starting to see a few of them out there from some third-party manufacturers like Sigma and Tamron and Tokina. However, there's still few and far between, and those that do exist, uh, you'll notice the price tag quickly climbs up there. So a classic example comes from a camera manufacturer that I really, really like, or rather a lens manufacturer that I do like for astrophotography, and they're called Rokinon. Um, so here we are presented with two options. They make a 14mm f2.8 lens and a 24mm f1.4 lens. This is kind of what we're seeing from a lot of the manufacturers, your Canons, your Nikons, your Sonys. They have lenses in this range. Rokinon just happens to be quite a bit less money with maintaining quite a bit of the quality. But you see here, you have a really wide angle, 14 millimeters. That's great. I don't expect anything too much wider than that for a full frame camera. But it's f2.8 
compared to f1.4. Now, if you studied your charts and apertures, you know that f2.8 is two stops slower than 1.4. That lets in only one quarter of the light that the f1.4 lens allows. Uh, that's a big deal. However, another big deal is the difference between 14 millimeters and 24 millimeters. You might think to yourself, well, you know, I've shot at 100 millimeters and 120 millimeters before, or I've shot at 300 and 310 millimeters, and I don't see much of a difference. At that wide end of the spectrum, it is quite a big difference. It, it means the difference between getting more foreground elements, more of a sky, considerably more of the sky. So those are two big different numbers. And I can't give you the solid answer, but what I can tell you is that generally for things like astrophotography, you do want to slightly prioritize that faster lens versus the wider angle because light is so critical for stars. When we're shooting other things, maybe you're photographing night scenes like at your camp in the Rocky Mountains at night. Uh, maybe you're photographing the Aurora Borealis. There's actually quite a bit more light for those other things. And those, I would start to prioritize the wider lens versus the faster lens. But for astrophotography, I've got to give my leg up to the faster lens. Okay, so this section is continuing to go. We're talking about the right kind of gear. So we discussed lenses, camera bodies, tripod. The last thing is, do I need a shutter release? And if you don't know what that is, it's basically a device. It's either electronic and in, in sort of like an infrared or radio control that's wireless, or it's a wired device that actually connects to your camera that allows you to hit the shutter button somewhat remotely so you're not actually touching the camera itself. Uh, this is really important for these long shutter speeds because if you touch that camera, you are going to slightly move it, even just a little bit, and that risks blurring the photo just ever so slightly. If you have a shutter release, that's great. Stick with it. I've noticed that the wireless ones give me a little bit of trouble. What I've been doing over the years, also because I just like to carry less stuff in the field, I like to fuddle with less, is I've been setting my camera on a two-second timer delay. So what this allows me to do is hit that shutter, keep my hands off the camera for two seconds, and then the photograph is taken without me actually touching the camera while the shutter's released. I think it works great. I've never felt the need to have that shutter release in addition to that two second delay. So that's my advice to you. You know, save yourself 20 bucks, save yourself another piece of gear that you have to bring in the field, go for the two second delay. We're moving on now to the right technique. We talked about the gear, let's talk about the technique. The first thing I'm gonna mention is the elephant in the room, the shutter speed, that long delay, that long open shutter that you need to capture low light conditions. So I mentioned this before, and this is kind of the general rule of thumb, is that the longest you can have your shutter go for astrophotography is gonna be 500 divided by the focal length of your lens. Now remember, this focal length is what we also call a full frame equivalent. So if you have a crop frame camera that has this multiplier effect to your focal length, you need to include that as well. So in other words, if you have, uh, let's say like, you know, one of my first cameras was a Canon Rebel. Um, that has a 1.6 crop factor. So that means if I'm shooting in a 10 millimeter range, I need to multiply that by 1.6. It's actually 16 millimeters. And what that turns out to be is about 30, 31 seconds at your maximum. Now, you can do all these fancy calculations. You can carry a calculator. Maybe you're good at math and you can do it in your head. But really, my advice is when you're shooting, you're going to always shoot with an ultra-wide angle or at least the widest angle you have. I don't recommend going longer than 25 seconds for your shots. This is going to be the safest. If you just dial this into your workflow, dial it into your head, when you're shooting stars, 
always go for 25 seconds. And there's really no reason to go less than 25 seconds because again, you need as much light as you can possibly handle. If you're finding you're getting a great shot at 20 seconds, dial your ISO down a little bit and then stick with that 25 second rule as just a general rule of thumb. As we continue on with the right technique, the next is gonna be the aperture number or your f-stop. I recommend very simply going with the smallest number or the widest aperture you can possibly get. Uh, most cameras, most lenses are gonna get you in and around 3.5, maybe f4. The better lenses will get you down to 2.8. The really primo lenses will get you down to f2.0 and maybe even f1.4. Getting down to that f1.4, sometimes 1.8, is gonna be a huge difference. Remember that every increment you go from 1.4 to 2 to 2.8 to 4 to 5.6 to 8, just memorize that sequence, every notch you go up higher lessens your light by half. So if you really get into the numbers, I'm actually able to get eight times more light in my shot if I'm using an f1.4 lens versus an f4 lens. Now really, most lenses are gonna get you somewhere in the middle there. F1.4 is a very, very niche astrophotography lens. They're out there, like I said, I think Rokinon is a great company. They offer a 24 millimeter F1.4 for about $300, which is surprisingly good for a specialty lens like that. Any other kit lens, the ones that just come with your camera, they're gonna to get to F4, F3.5. You might wanna spend a little bit more money to get down to F2.8. A lot of the really good ultra wide angle lenses get down to 2.8. Um, it's satisfactory, but remember that f1.4 actually gets you four times as much light as f2.8. Because remember, going 2.8 down to 2 doubles, and then 2 to 1.4 doubles again. So four times as much light. This is not to say that you can only do astrophotography with the very best lenses with the lowest f number, but it just gives you perspective as to what you're really getting into when you get those specialty astrophotography lenses. You want to dial in a pretty high ISO just to start off with. And when I say high, that's very subjective. High on one camera might be 1600, high on another camera might be 6400. And the reason is because camera quality has huge ranging impacts on how well your camera handles high ISO. But in general, I say start at at least ISO 800. Really more often than not, start at ISO 1600, even on the most basic cameras out there, the most introductory cameras. Start at ISO 1600. Remember, if you start getting a really, really great shot and you're like, oh, I can dial my shutter speed down a little bit faster, then don't do that. Stick with that 25 seconds, but dial your ISO down incrementally as you feel like you have enough light. Usually it's not gonna happen because there's just so little light when it comes to star photography. You want as much light as possible. So 1600, for the better cameras out there, if you're shooting on full frame sensors, you can go up to 3200 pretty easily and even 6400. Now you think these numbers are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 6400 must be so much bigger than 3200. Uh, it must be so much bigger than 1600 and 800 and so on and so forth. But remember ISO, the way that that unit works is that every time you double your ISO, you're doubling the amount of light. It's a little bit easier to think about than the f-stop. Remember f-stop are very, very specific increments that aren't totally related to those numbers of 2.8, 5.6, f8. However, ISO, very straightforward. So compare 3200 to 6400, I'm doubling the amount of light at ISO 6400, plain and simple. Mirror lockup is another good thing to think about. Um, that's mirror, just kind of like a bathroom mirror. Uh, you, what you want to do is you want to look in your camera's menu or manual and figure out how to manually lock up that mirror. Now, a lot of you out there probably have mirrorless cameras. 
Great. No need to worry about it. But the problem with a mirror in doing lung exposures is sometimes when that shutter happens and the mirror locks up and it locks down, it actually sends a small vibration through your camera and it could unsteady your photo and inject a little bit of blur in there. This kind of gets into the almost perfectionist side of things. But nevertheless, if you're going through all these steps, that's another one to consider adding to your workflow. Another thing that I highly recommend, I mentioned this earlier, is your two-second delay. This saves you from having to bring a shutter release cable or use one of those little remotes. So look in your camera's manual, go into the menu, and set a two-second delay for your photos. That way, when you press the shutter, there's two seconds for that camera to stop moving, plenty of time, and you're going to get a great shot. Okay, the last part of the right technique before we get into actually taking the shot and composing the shot and that kind of stuff is going to be how to focus. This is going to be probably the longest of the right technique list, but it's the most important. We're already shooting at really shallow depths of field, so if you don't get the right focus on the foreground element or even something way in the distance, it's going to be noticeable and it's going to really take away from the quality of your shot. Focus is really key for night photography and it's hard to do. So think about this, you're, you know, imagine that you're standing in the middle of the Rocky Mountains or in the middle of Bryce Canyon National Park and it's dark, you can't really see the cliffs, you can't see your camera. How are you going to focus when everything's completely pitch black around you? Well, here is my tried and true technique. This is worth taking notes for or just hoping to have a really good memory on it. But it is a multi-step process, but it's going to give you great focus and very easy focus each and every time. So here's what you do. First is you definitely want to pick out something in the foreground or something to have in your scene. I've done a lot of astrophotography and just aiming up at the sky and getting the Milky Way with no rocks, no mountain, no tree, no nothing. It's just not as good of a shot. It's cool and it's a great way to practice and you know, why not? I don't want to take away from it, but it doesn't have that context that we really, really desire in photography. So I recommend finding something, whether it's a hoodoo in Bryce Canyon, whether it's a distant mountain. Preferably, you want something sort of in the foreground, maybe like a tree or your tent if you're camping, something that gives a little bit of context and also something that provides you an easy way to focus. The other thing is you don't want it to be too, too close to you because remember, we're shooting at really shallow depths of field. So if we're shooting at f1.4 or even 2.8 and we're focused on something that's 5 or 10 feet away from us, those stars are going to look really blurry in the distance and that's no good. So ideally, we want something actually more or less like 20, 30, 40, 50 feet, maybe even convert those to yards, 20, 30, 40, 50 yards away so that we can have a decent amount of focus on that foreground element as well as the background, which is the stars. So ideally, you pick a foreground element that has some sort of light on it. But like I said, that's easier said than done. That doesn't always happen. So what I do is I carry my trusty flashlight, a pretty good one that has a pretty high lumen rate. Um, I recommend either the Fenix brand or Surefire. It's going to cost you a little bit of money, but they're great flashlights regardless. But what it does is it's able to reach those distant cliffs or that distant tree, that thing you're focusing on, and it allows your autofocus mechanism to focus a little bit, even though it's pitch black around. So you're illuminating that one subject. You're taking your camera. Like I always say, have that center focus point. Don't let the camera choose where to focus. You always tell it to focus on that center point. Aim that center point on that illuminated object. Use your autofocus, depress the shutter halfway, lock in that focus, and then hands off, step away for a half second. So then what you're gonna do is you're gonna go ahead and set your lens from autofocus to manual focus. What this does, it obviously turns off autofocus, but more importantly, it locks in that focus. If you don't move your camera, 
you are locked on perfect focus for each and every shot. And also what that does is you probably have tried this before where you're focusing in the dark and you're pressing your shutter halfway and, and the lens is going in and out, in and out. It's not finding any focus. When you're on manual, it doesn't care. It, it bypasses that auto setting and it always takes the shot no matter what. So what you're doing by auto focusing first and then setting it to manual is you're giving your camera the ability to just shoot as soon as you tell it to, as soon as you press that button, and also not change focus. So you focus once, the flashlight goes off, that way it doesn't ruin your shot, it also preserves night vision to not have to constantly shine a bright light and refocus and autofocus and refocus. So you're doing it once for your shot, and I really, I stay there for the next five, ten night shots before I reposition. I can absolutely change my composition as long as I'm not moving my camera and tripod anywhere reasonably farther or closer to my focus point. I can move laterally, like maybe a foot or two, but really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get different compositions from that exact point that I've locked in focus for. So this is huge. This is a great way to get that focus. Again, I'm just going to review this one more time. Find something to focus on, have a flashlight that can light it up enough, use autofocus, press the shutter halfway, then set your lens to manual focus mode, and then hands off. Don't touch that focusing barrel the rest of that setup, the rest of that shot from that location. Okay, so that's a general technique, my workflow for astrophotography. But let me just reiterate this, that even though this is for astrophotography, it works perfectly for any sort of night photography, any sort of long exposure photography. The main reason I wanted to start with astrophotography, it is really the hardest. It's the most limiting, it's the most difficult so if you can get these techniques, you can get any sort of night photography out there. Before we move on to Northern Lights photography, I wanted to talk about a few other things as it pertains to stars. One is just to reemphasize the point that you really want to have something in the foreground. You want to focus and actually compose a shot based on a cliff, a mountain, a tree, a tent, a house, a car, any sort of vehicle. If you just photograph the sky itself, it's just not going to be that interesting. And it's going to be actually harder to focus. One technique you can try, but I actually don't really recommend it, is to set your focusing ring on infinity. So if you'll look at the barrel of your lens, the, the focus mechanism, that ring, goes all the way from the closest distance to the furthest distance. And usually the, the furthest is going to be demarcated by a little infinity logo, kind of like an 8 on its side. You would think that focusing on infinity is ideal for stars, because they're thousands if not millions of miles away in some cases but you'll be surprised how inaccurate it really is when you focus on quote-unquote infinity sometimes people actually put a little sharpie marker on their barrel and do some lens tests and they dial it just inside of infinity but the amount of difference and the distance that you have to focus that focusing ring to to nail it you're talking about like fractions of an inch like you know fractions of a millimeter really so there's a lot of room for error if you don't absolutely nail it. That's why I think the autofocus is cer certainly the best way. Um, you can't autofocus really on stars very well. And even if you did, it's going to be a little bit messed up. So again, that's where I say really finding that foreground element is key. Once you're set up in location, it goes without saying, but snap away. Like I mentioned, I usually shoot anywhere, anywhere between five and 10 photos per setup. Um, once I get those five or 10 photos, you know, I'm mixing different compositions. I'm trying portrait versus landscape mode. Maybe I'll try a little selfie and I'll set it on a timer and I'll go stand in the shot. That's always fun. But then once I take those five or 10 shots and I see something else, a different angle, I'll redo that whole procedure again. So I'll have to pick up the tripod, move it, use that flashlight and autofocus trick, set it on manual and begin anew. Another thing I recommend, it's a very cheap investment, we're talking about a couple dollars, is one of the star apps, one of the star applications for your smartphone. 
This is a really, really easy way to see where the Milky Way is in the sky. Sometimes when we first get out there, it takes a bit for our eyes to adjust to the darkness, like 5, 10, even 15 minutes. So the Milky Way, even though it might be right in front of you, you might not be able to see it. Having this little app, it'll actually show you exactly where in the sky it is. That way, as you're scouting your location, you can say, oh, great, well, there's this beautiful tree over there, and I can see the Milky Way is technically right overhead. So that's where I'm going to go. That's where I'm going to set up my shot. One of these star apps like Star Walker, um, gosh, I've, I've seen a, at least a dozen of them now, and they're all $1 to $5. They are really, really valuable to have for astrophotography. And then finally, do your homework on where to go for the best stars. There are a few things to consider. Uh, you can, of course, go to the Google and figure out where are the darkest skies on our planet or where is the darkest sky in my state or the darkest skies with national parks, you name it. But really, there's there's a bit of a, a, a cocktail of ingredients that you need to consider. One, of course, is darkness, just sheer distance away from towns. That's a really, really important thing. That light pollution or ambient light from a big city can extend really quite a ways out. But another one that you may not think of that's equally important is elevation. You actually want to be above three or 4,000 feet to get rid of that lower elevation atmosphere. It's usually just water vapor and humidity, but it actually does a lot to shroud the sky. So as a result, you can be on the most distant deserted island in the world, but you're not going to have as good a photography for stars as you would maybe in Bryce Canyon National Park. You know, Bryce is not too, too far away from Bryce Canyon City, and there are other towns in central Utah. Nevertheless, it's rated as one of the darkest skies on the planet, and it's that combination of, well, moderate darkness away from big cities, that's for sure, dryness, it's in a desert, and then elevation. Bryce is at about 8,000 feet, so you're above all that low-altitude humidity. It does absolute wonders. But again, check the internet, check Google, see where some good locations are in your area, and give it a shot. All right, so we're moving on to Northern Lights Photography. Fortunately, a lot of everything I've told you is going to apply to the T for Northern Lights Photography. We'll start with a little bit of redundancy. I'll talk about the gear. We'll review technique again. Uh, remember, a lot of the stuff I talked about for astrophotography applies perfectly for Northern Lights Photography, but there are some differences, particularly with shutter speed and ISO. But then just as before, we're going to kind of wrap up with some of the best places in the world to see the aurora, special considerations, maybe some special websites. Where can you go to get the best chance for Northern Lights photography? I'll give you all that once we review the gear and the right technique. So because you've already heard this before, the right gear, I'm going to whiz through this pretty quickly. You need a tripod. You want a camera capable of low F numbers or camera and lens combination of low F numbers, a wide aperture. I gave you all the reasons why you should think about getting those 2.8 and below. I will advocate for northern lights. You can actually look at that balance of those ultra-wide lenses and those wide apertures a little bit differently. You can actually prioritize for something a bit wider versus those super fast lenses, those F1.4s. Frankly, I don't think you need to photograph northern lights with anywhere near the same exposure settings. It's not as dark. In fact, you're going to hear in a bit why you might want to stop down that shutter speed a little bit because of the movement in the northern lights. But as a result, because it's hard to have your cake and eat it too with that perfect lens, I always go for something more like a 16 to 35 millimeter with that f2.8 instead of something that is less wide like a 24 millimeter prime and f1.4 because I'd rather have it wider and I don't need it to be quite as fast of a lens. And then of course, same thing as before, no need for a shutter release cable as long as you can dial in that two second shutter delay. As far as the shutter speed goes, this is the really interesting part about Northern Lights. 
you actually want to be prepared for a little bit faster shutter speeds because if those northern lights are really kicking like they do in these beautiful places like Churchill, Fairbanks, you name it, you're going to actually want to shoot at something like around 10 or 15 or maybe 20 second exposure. That 25 second and maybe even 30 second on those darkest of nights, just not needed, not really advantageous for northern lights because you're going to end up blurring too much of the motion of the lights themselves. What'll happen is if you set this really long exposure, regardless of the stars, you're not so much worried about them. So you're not worried about those little wormy effects of the stars. What you're really worried about is the blurring of the northern lights. On a big show, they can be sweeping across the sky in a matter of seconds. And what it'll do is it'll just make the whole sky look like this very uniform, diffuse green. Not anywhere near as interesting as if you stop it down a little bit, use a little bit faster shutter speed, and get these nice, what we call curtain effects of the lights, where the lights themselves kind of take on this appearance of like a curtain that would be in front of a play or an auditorium. It's really spectacular, really beautiful, but you need a slightly faster shutter speed than for astrophotography. So generally speaking, when I get out to photograph Northern Lights, my workflow starts with pretty generous settings, meaning a longer than normal or longer than expected shutter speed, a really low F number, that doesn't change very much, but then also a ridiculously high ISO, like maybe ISO 6400, 12,800, you know, it doubles and doubles and doubles from there. And the reason is, is I'm not aiming to get the best photographs with those settings. You know, I'd much prefer to shoot with a lower ISO, but I use those settings to be able to test for the Northern Lights. Northern Lights, if you've seen them, they don't just all of a sudden pop out like a fireworks show. I, I often refer to them as nature's fireworks show, but they're not like pop all of a sudden getting caught off guard. They're slow to build. They start to look like clouds and then they start to take on the color and they start to maybe get more robust and vibrant and then colorful and they start to move. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm setting these really, really ridiculously low light sensitivity settings so I can start to test to see, oh, is that a cloud or is that the northern lights? What's that going on over there? And I won't even set up my shot. I'll just take a test shot, let it run for the 20, 25 seconds and just see, oh, yep, there's green. Boom. That's northern lights. Um, the camera, as we started this whole thing off with, actually perceives the colors a heck of a lot better than our eyes do. So we like to take those test shots just to see what direction we should be setting up at. Because once they appear in that direction, even if very, very flimsy and very, very faint, that's where they're going to start to erupt when and if the what we call an aurora substorm eventually occurs. When moving on from just these test shot settings, I'm going to usually dial in a much lower shutter speed. My ideal is usually around 15 seconds, maybe... I probably never go lower than five seconds, but between five and 15 seconds is what I think the sweet spot is. One of the big things to consider is that when your shutter is open for 15, 20, 25 seconds, maybe even more, is that that's all time that you're not getting photos as well. <laughs> um, so again, when the northern lights really start to move and wave and have that ribbon-like, curtain-like effect... You want to be taking shots as often as possible, really, because they can change and move and maybe you get that perfect one that's just arcing right over the tree or right over the igloo, right over the house or the research station. So again, 5 to 15 seconds is my range that I try to stick with. If absolutely necessary, I'll go to 20 or 25, but usually 5 to 15 seconds. The F number, the aperture, I almost always shoot what we call wide open. That's going to be the lowest F number. That's usually going to be F2.8, F2, F1.4. I don't go much higher than that to get depth of field because I really want to prioritize for as much light as getting into my camera as possible. 
ISO, I start off really high, like in the tens of thousands because my camera will allow me. I'm never going to expect a good shot at ISO 10,000, 12,000, 25,000. So I'm going to start there just again to position myself, but I'm really, my target is to get to ISO 2000 or lower. That's my real target. So mix that with the shutter speed, mix that with my aperture, and I want to get that shot around ISO 2000. If I can get lower, great, but getting a really good shot that turns out that I can post on my wall, um, you know, print out on big paper, or even just put online that is not noisy and is not grainy, you know, at 6400, good luck. You know, you're going to have to have some major noise reduction software if you're going to salvage that. So my target setting, get that ISO around 2000 or lower if I possibly can. Mirror lockup, same thing. Uh, if I'm feeling in the mood to be a perfectionist, I'll go ahead and do that. If I don't have time or I forget, I'm not going to cry over spilled milk. It's not a huge deal. It's just that slight little improvement. The two second delay for your shutter is a must. That actually does inject some real deal movement into your camera. So two second delay, and I use the exact same focus technique as for astrophotography. Remember, flashlight, autofocus, set to manual, and then don't move. Once again, finding something in the foreground and the midground is really important for anything that's celestial. I think that when we shoot these things like northern lights and stars, they, they look so kind of unfamiliar to us that to provide something that has more familiar context, like a structure, like a vehicle, like a tree or an entire forest, a mountain range, in the north, there's some really, really cool things like a nookshooks, traditional Inuit structures. We can build igloos and illuminate them from the inside. We can pitch tents and put a candle on the inside to have this wonderful, brilliant yellow or orange glow. There are a lot of tricks we can do, uh, at least on the trips that I'm guiding for photography of northern lights. But nevertheless, getting something in that foreground to provide context and equally to provide you with that focus point is key. And just as with astrophotography, snap, snap, snap away, even more so. The stars, they don't move all that often, but the northern lights, they really do. And like I said before, not everybody detects them quite the same, especially when it's early on in the substorm or the actual display of the lights. So take a lot of photos. On occasion, I even set my camera's internal intervalometer, as it's called. It's basically a device or it's an internal computer that allows the photos to just be taken over and over and over again. So you don't even have to take the shot. It just does it automatically. They're really useful. If you don't have a camera that has that internally, most of the new ones within the last three years or so do, the, the fancier ones at least. But you can buy these things for $20 on Amazon. Intervalometer is the name, and you can actually set it just to continuously take shots. Once again, not that useful for star photos unless you're recomposing and getting different parts of the sky. But for northern lights, because the northern lights are actually moving, or at least we hope them to be in really good shows, you can get 10 different scenes and 10 subsequent photos. Just like with astrophotography, I recommend getting some sort of app for your smartphone to track the aurora. Generally, the same star apps don't track aurora, so it's going to be another app. You might have to buy it, but they're not, they're not expensive. And again, a lot of them are free out there. I'm just looking at my phone. I have three or four different ones that I've picked up over the years, and they, those were all free. But I think my favorite one right now is called My Aurora Forecast. There is a free version and there's a pro version. You know, the pro version is $1.99. Wow, you know, but the free one is just great. Um, I am noticing as I look on the app store that there are now dozens more than I checked last year. So you can pick up different, you know, a few different ones. Um, some of these have a lot of stars, a lot of reviews. Just get something, you know, use your own tuition. Get an app that has good reviews, good stars. It's going to really, really help with setting up for Aurora because that way you don't have to be out in the cold 
all night just to get the shot. All right, and finally, I want to mention the best places in the world to see the Aurora Borealis. Um, you know, you notice I haven't really mentioned Aurora Australis very much, and there's a very specific reason is that it's not as easy to see because of where this Aurora Oval wraps around the Earth. So this is a really key term, and I would highly recommend you Google search it, do some own research on the internet, but the Aurora Oval, oval like the shape, is a zone of very high magnetic activity around the geomagnetic North Pole. Because it's an oval, it's not like an exact line around North Pole or even this magnetic North Pole. It kind of wobbles a little bit, so it's definitely best to check the app, check online, do some research, but some of my favorite places I can say are going to be Arctic Canada, particularly the town of Churchill is really, really good for it. The reason I like it so much is there's just enough infrastructure in the town that allows you in the course of three, four, or five days to get some really, really good Aurora viewing and photography. Essentially, any town that's underneath this Aurora Oval is going to be pretty darn good. But like I mentioned, this infrastructure idea is one to really take into consideration. And you can actually go a little bit too overboard in some places. So, uh, for instance, Fairbanks, great place right underneath the Aurora Oval, but it does happen to be the second largest town in Alaska. Not huge, but, you know, at 35, 40,000 people, you do have to get quite a bit out of town to get those dark skies needed. You know, coastal Russia happens to be really good for the Aurora Oval. Um, not the best place, not the easiest place to travel to necessarily. So, again, there's a lot of considerations, but if you want my number one pick for the Aurora Borealis and Northern Lights, Churchill, Arctic Canada, really, really quality areas. So there we go. Night Photography 101. Everything you want to know about star photography, Northern Lights photography, and really just any night photography in general. So remember, night photography in general is way beyond Northern Lights and way beyond astrophotography. There's so much cool stuff to photograph at night. However, these tips and tricks, these settings, this workflow is going to be perfect for any time you want to photograph at night. The main difference is that the further you go away from astrophotography, i.e. the more light you're going to get in your scene because you're, let's say, photographing a camp, let's say you're photographing your house at night or a university campus, you're going to have street lights, you're going to have all sorts of other stuff. Even moonlight helps quite a bit. So as a result, you're going to be able to slack off quite a bit in those settings if you're photographing anything that has a little bit more light in the scene. You can shoot at a faster shutter speed. You can dial your ISOs down lower. You can use a wider depth of field and have a bigger F number. There's all sorts of things you can do. And the most important thing is get out there, give it a shot, experiment with these settings, understand the differences of what it means to double your shutter speed or to increase your depth of field. See what that does to the light getting into your camera because I think if you can harness night photography in any sense, you're going to become such a better photographer because you really understand light at a whole new level. So thanks so much for tuning in today, folks. If you have any questions about this, if you have any comments you want to leave, please do so. Visit our Instagram page at, at wildphotographer.podcast. You can check us out on Facebook. We'd love to have a conversation with you and happy to help further. Looking forward to next time.